confess, I never really figured out how to start this sermon. I tried, look at the title, Betrayed. How do I begin? Video clip showing somebody betraying somebody else? Have different people stand up and confess times they betrayed somebody or are presently betraying somebody? That would be fun. Play songs talking about betrayal like the first cut is the deepest or we used to be friends or they smile in your face. Oh, the backstabbers, you know. And I was definitely not going to read you 12 unbelievable stories of betrayal to make you feel better about your own relationships. So never mind. Sadly, we know the topic. We know the feelings. Betrayal, of course, is defined as breaking one's promise to, being disloyal to someone, to be unfaithful to someone. And, you know, we all have stories big and small related to betrayal where we betrayed somebody or we were the betrayer or we were betrayed against. And this morning, we're going to open our hearts and minds to a story that we've heard many times. We might know the characters and the outcome. It's a story that we often hear this time of year. And it more or less blends in with the whole narrative of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It is tragic, but perhaps we've almost become a little numb to how much it intersects with our own lives. We may look at Judas and wonder how he could have done this thing to the king of kings. We may wrestle with his motivation or how God could have allowed him to do this. And these are complicated questions and they're mysteries. And we won't have the time, nor is this the format to fully address all those harder questions. But we are going to look at three betrayal responses And so, please note that throughout the sermon, I'm going to be using the word we, because that this sermon is as much for me as it is for all of us. And in the process of hearing these words, of diving a little deeper into this, we will find ourselves in the midst of these responses, and we will lament the sin that so easily entangles us while remembering That through the one Judas betrayed, and we betrayed, there is forgiveness, grace, resurrection, and hope. Always keep that in mind. If you would, take your Bibles out, uh, or you can look up on the screen, Mark chapter 14. Start with those words. Mark chapter 14. Start with verse 43. It says, immediately while he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, arrest him, and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And then Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not arrest me. 
But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. With that segue, let's pray. (laughs) Father, this is a, a convicting topic and a story that causes us to focus on our frailties. In this time, may we face all that has happened before, accept forgiveness, and move on to something so much better. Amen. So as I promised, we're going to look at three different responses, all related to swords and clubs, a kiss, an ear, the disappearance of a linen cloth. And these are all related to the responses of people that are around Jesus in those days, and sadly, still the responses of people around Jesus these days. I want to invite you to listen to the story again for the first time. As we travel this Lenten road to the cross, to the resurrection, may God help us face our humanity and find ourselves in these responses. So in verse 43, we see Jesus interrupted mid-sentence by Judas coming in with his gang. And Mark is very clear to remind us that Judas was one of the twelve. And so they come in with swords and clubs. And of course, I've always wondered, maybe you have too, wow, it's a little bit of a big deal for one person. You know, what were they expecting? Jesus had superhuman powers. He was going to make all kinds of moves and take them down. What did they, what were they feeling when they brought in this big group of people angry with clubs and spears and swords and everything they brought. But it's just another reminder of the repeated futility in all of history of a physical force thinking it could overtake a spiritual one. That's a whole other sermon right there. Mark says they were from the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. Matthew and Luke also said that same thing. Chiefs, chief priests, the scribes and the elders sent these people. John says, soldiers and guards. So Judas here is with his private gang of people who are apparently so afraid of Jesus that they had to bring weapons. And Judas had prepared the crowd with a sign. And of course, we know the sign was the kiss. Now, growing up in the church, I too wondered all through those years, why? That's a kind of a weird sign. I mean, you watch enough movies when they get the bad guy, he goes, seize him. They point right to the person and everybody jumps in. And why a kiss? Well, as I matured a little bit more and did a little more study, I realized that this was a typical way of greeting a rabbi. Now, there's been some scholars that have said there might be some other reasons that Judas did this. One was to kind of hold Jesus in place for a moment while the others came and grabbed him. Another one was the garden was so dim that of course it would help if Judas actually went to the person and not just point indiscriminately in a direction. And the saddest part that scholars have noted for us is that in the Greek, this kiss was an intimate, very friendly, lover's kind of kiss on the cheek, meaning that Judas' betrayal was even deeper. It wasn't just a formal greeting. It was a greeting of love, but I'm betraying you. 
So Judas is there to betray. And of course, Jesus knew one of his disciples would betray him. It was no surprise. But nevertheless, the emotion of that moment must have been horrible for Jesus to experience that betrayal. And why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, scholars disagree, but it brings us really to our first response, and that's the response of pride. Some say Judas might have been jealous of Jesus' popularity. I mean, after all, Judas, if he was looking for some some, uh, name and reputation, Jesus was getting all the attention and not Judas. Some have said maybe it was Judas's clamor for power, that he had expected Jesus to be this one that would come and overthrow the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus starts talking about compassion, mercy, forgiveness, well, that's nothing that you do to overthrow the Roman government. So there was that theory. And of course, Judas' greed likely did him in. We see the greed in many different instances where, of course, he was complaining about all the expensive perfume that was poured on the feet of the woman and how could they waste that kind of money. And then John reminds us in chapter 12 that Judas was an out-and-out thief. He was pulling money from the bag and taking it for himself. So it's no surprise that 30 pieces of silver would have bought Judas in that situation. He had responded to Jesus with a destructive choice of pride. And I thought as I studied this, and I think as we are sitting here this morning, that we must know, too, that we are prone to respond in pride. And not one of us escapes this. We deeply care about our image. We care about our biases, and we carry those biases. We want our voice to be heard, and we want to win the debate. We want our needs to be met, sometimes at the expense of what is just and what is right and wise. And in this way, we betray the one who calls us to be a new creation and to find our identity in the person of Jesus Christ. The prideful betrayal happens even in ministry. And I know there's been throughout the morning a couple of different pastors that would understand this as well as would lay leaders in the church. How many times have we let our pride get in the way of what God would want? Release God's work to him. It's his church. It's his kingdom. And then I take it back. And I hold on to it for a while with my own opinions and my biases. And ah, give it back. Take it again. Give it back. Take it again. The response of pride is a response of betrayal to the one who created us, died for us, rose again. So Jesus gets arrested. And then we are told that one who stood nearby pulled out his sword and chopped off the ear of a servant. Now, of course, some scholars believe the source for this unknown author of the book of Mark was Peter. And so he might have said, I just refer to me as one who stood nearby. That's a theory, right? The other books tell us plain, flat out, it was Peter. Uh, and I often think, and I've thought that even as a little kid, when I saw this story, that why did, well, as a little kid, you go, why did he chop off his ear? And then I started to think as I grew a little older, what did he think he was going to do against an angry gang or soldiers or guards or whoever these people, what, what was that going to accomplish? But then again, we think about, this is Peter. 
We'll talk about that in a minute. Jesus says, hey, what? you've come out here with swords and clubs. You think I'm a bandit? I mean, good grief. You could have rested me any number of times. Why now? Well, we see here, this is the response of violence. I've heard it said sometimes that it's easier for us to fight for Christ than to die for him. The response of violence is one of emotion and impulsiveness. Peter was having nothing to do with this arrest, even though Jesus told him and others on many time, in many accounts, this is what's going to happen. Count on it. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, this was Peter's way of operating. We read throughout scripture, Peter was impulsive. He was the first one to raise his hand and answer a question that Jesus asked. He was the one that was ready to go out and take the world on. And of course, Jesus capitalized on that when he said, Peter, upon your work will the church be built. And that we took that for good. But in this situation, Peter did himself in. It was his undoing. In our emotional, overly passionate, and impulsive responses to the attacks of the church by enemies, we too betray the one who is calling us to, as Micah 6, 8 says, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Jesus calls us, as he called Peter, to clear thinking. Now let me stop for a second. Of course we are called to stand up for what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. But we are not called to be defending the Lord with the wrong weapons. Chaplain Chris Hughes in a blog entry, Building Community by Facing Collective Trauma, said, Redemptive violence is ancient and instinctual. The belief that violence must be used to overcome violence. Jesus challenged this thinking even as he was being arrested. Peter, put away your weapon for those that live by the sword will die by the sword. When we feel threatened in our righteous anger, we can more readily lean on a truism like, let's fight fire with fire, instead of Jesus' command to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. Sadly, as we all too well know, in this present culture, we find a culture that is ripe for the response of violence. In all, and I do mean all corners and sides of the spectrum of the theological world, the cultural world, the political world, the economic world, the social world, we are guilty of shouting down the opposition, speaking before listening, stereotyping before understanding. All people in this world were created by God. All people in this world are people for whom Christ died. We may not agree with all people theologically, politically, economically, socially, or culturally. That's understood. But let's recognize that Jesus was responding in the midst of betrayal, being falsely arrested, and being completely abandoned. What does this teach us about how we respond to our God who really is sovereign over all the earth? One writer said Jesus was an oasis of serenity when everybody else was posturing and yelling and acting impulsively. Do we really trust the King of Kings? The God who is Lord over all creation? 
And how are we showing dignity in the midst of disagreement? Christ does not need us to fight for him. He's calling us to believe in him, to trust him, to live a life of love, to listen, and to put on the full armor of God using his weapons, not our own. And then, finally, we read these sad words in verse 50. All of them deserted and fled. Every time I read that, I just want to stop and take a deep breath and say, how could that have happened? But this is the response of fear. When we talk about the response of fear, it's begging the question of what are we afraid And in the context of this passage, the presenting fear would have been a large crowd with swords and clubs. That would make me afraid. That would make all of us afraid. It's no secret that we value our lives, so fight or flight are seemingly the only two options. And the disciples chose flight. One disciple even left his clothes behind. We only know it was a certain young man. And Mark is the only one to record this in his stories. And, of course, there's been all kinds of questions about why did he choose to include that particular story. Some scholars believe that young man could function symbolically for all Jesus' followers who run away in shame and nakedness at Jesus' arrest. Others believe that person actually was Mark, and this was his signature in the corner of the painting. He could have been hiding in the shadows and would have been the only one to see Jesus praying as the others were sleeping, no matter what theory is true, all of them fled. And we want to think, I want to think, this is not something I would have done. Courage to stand alongside our brothers and sisters for what is right in the face of danger is easier said than done. I've been thinking a lot over the years of the work of Martin Luther King Jr. And as I watched the film Selma, I remember the part clearly where I saw some white clergy come down and march across that bridge as well in solidarity with our African-American brothers and sisters and all races. And I wonder, I've often wondered, had I been a clergyman in those days, would I have had the courage to get on a bus and face the danger that would have been there to do that? I would like to think yes. How do we betray the one who has overcome death and fear with our own fear? Through pride and through violence, we combat and we confront with relationships with those we disagree and with God. But at what point do we turn too far in the other direction when it's time for us to really truly stand up? And that's the fear piece. There are two pieces of fear that I want to briefly state. The first one is fear of really following Christ and living out his teachings because of what others may think of us or they might not like us as much. It's true. When we choose to live out the teachings of Christ in this day, in this culture, there's going to be friction. Jesus promised us if we take up our cross and we follow him, that we would be persecuted. That has been and will be true of all history And all times to come. It has not been better or it has not been worse. And as we follow Christ, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. 
Though the kingdom of this world follows a different plan, we are reminded not to fear. And the Bible tells us over 350 times, do not be afraid. Do we truly believe those words? The second type of fear is the fear of really following Christ and living out his teachings because it will mean my own opinions and biases are exploded and changed. I just finished reading a book, a a kind of a scientific study of bias in our life called Blind Spot. And the subtitle is Hidden Biases of Good People. We are all human. We all have biases. Even with the best of intentions and a close relationship with Christ, we fall short. We are human. And it is through that lens that we look at the teachings of Jesus The disciples traveled with the physical Jesus. They were with him day in and day out. They heard his words directly. They saw his miracles physically, yet all of them deserted and fled. How well are we doing at letting the truths of God's word to the Old and the New Testaments inform our relationship with Christ, the church, God's people? How are we really doing at loving our enemies? How ready are we to be the good Samaritan and neighbor to someone who holds different beliefs and convictions than us? How ready are we to turn the other cheek? And of course we could go on. Facing the hard and challenging truths of Jesus' call requires courage in the face of danger. So what? That's a question that a wise philosophy teacher at Greenville College years ago taught me to ask for everything that I learn. We've just traveled through a story known mostly as a little piece of the bigger crucifixion and resurrection story. It's not been a lighthearted trip, has it? And challenging truths have forced us to face all that has been in our lives to this point. But as I prayed in the beginning of this sermon, And words that I found in the New Zealand prayer book says, Lord, help us to face all that has been, accept forgiveness, and move to something so much better. Let's do that. Let's pray that prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.